0: Change is hard. Change is especially hard when you have a routine, a system, or a way of doing things that is disrupted not by your choice. Change is a little bit easier when you're choosing to do it, but when someone else is making that choice for you, it's not easy. When we are comfortable with the way we do things at home or school or work, we don't tend to appreciate being told things are going to be different and that we need to embrace something new have you ever had the thought in a situation like this we thought you know i things were working out pretty well the way they were i liked things the way they were it was just fine the old way was good how do you respond to change how well do you embrace something new We are continuing our sermon series going through the Gospel of Luke and our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. We've entitled our sermon series going through Luke's Gospel, The Surprising Kingdom. Jesus Christ came into the world as God's chosen and anointed king, the Messiah. And he came to establish God's kingdom, but he did so in ways that were surprising. His birth his life, his ministry, his friends, his teaching, his miracles were surprising in many ways. In our passage this morning, we are going to see that the Jewish people in the time of Jesus were called upon to embrace something new. But it was not a minor change. It was a change that turned their way of life upside down. In our passage last week, A man who was a paralytic was brought to Jesus. Friends carried him on a mat to bring him to Jesus, believing that Jesus had the power to heal him. The crowd in the house where Jesus was was so large that the friends had to take him up the outer stairs, remove some tiles from the roof, and lower him down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, Your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, objected to what Jesus said. They said, who is this? Who blasphemes? Who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus responded to their objection by demonstrating that he does have the authority to forgive sins. By demonstrating his authority to heal the man who was paralyzed. And so there's this pattern of Jesus taking an action, the religious leaders objecting, and then Jesus responding to the objection. And we are going to see that pattern repeat a couple of times in our passage this morning, followed by a parable that sheds light on who Jesus is and the nature of his ministry. I'm going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39, and I encourage you to follow along. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. In our passage, we see two examples of action, objection, and response, followed by a parable the first instance of the action, objection, and response pattern begins with Jesus calling a man named Levi. Jesus had already begun, begun to assemble an unusual cast of disciples when he called Peter, James, and John, who were not trained to be scribes or teachers, but were ordinary fishermen. But with his next choice, he went from choosing men who were unlikely candidates to choosing someone who was downright Suspect. Levi was a tax collector. What did that mean? He was a Jewish man who collected taxes from his fellow Jews on behalf of the Roman Empire, which ruled over the Jewish people. As you can imagine, the Jewish people had a very negative view of their fellow Jews who did the bidding of the powerful and pagan Roman Empire. Moreover, tax collectors were notorious for collecting more than what was owed and skimming off the top. The words that the Jews would use to describe such people might include dishonest, robbers, extortioners, collaborators, treasonous, treacherous, and enemies of God and his people. In other words, no one would expect that the Messiah, or any rabbi really, would see a tax collector as a good candidate to be a disciple. Yet it was not Levi who approached Jesus, but Jesus approached Levi and said, follow me. Jesus initiated the discipleship relationship with Levi while he was still a tax collector. Think about that. Jesus, after his public ministry began, initiated this discipleship relationship with a tax collector, knowing the kind of reputation he had among the Jewish people. He was willing to identify himself with Levi regardless of what other people might think. Well, the call of Levi was followed by a dinner party that Levi threw for Jesus at his house with his kind of people. Luke describes them as a large collection of tax collectors and others. And like Levi, his guests had bad reputations. They were not the kind of people that good, respectable folks associated with, especially religious leaders. And yet there Jesus was, in the house, at the table, Comfortably enjoying spending time with them as if they were his friends. He did not avoid them. He did not merely tolerate them and did not meet with them privately to avoid tarnishing his reputation. He openly befriended them. What greater gift could he give these folks than friendship And fellowship with him. Can you imagine the impression this had on them? They were aware of the reputation they had. They understood how other people viewed them. They were aware that Jesus was a teacher who was exerting influence, who people wanted to hear. They had heard about the miracles that he had performed. They had heard the rumors of this extraordinary and unusual teacher who was teaching about God, and here he was coming to this dinner party to spend time with them. Can you imagine the impression this had on them? What did they think? But this action of of calling Levi and befriending his friends led to an objection from the Pharisees, and their scribes. And so this pattern begins to emerge in Luke's gospel the Jewish religious leadership objecting to Jesus and the manner in which he conducted his ministry. In this case, they grumbled at his disciples and said, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Luke clues us into their tone so we don't mistakenly think they were genuinely curious. Hey, Jesus, we just want to know. We want to understand. No, they grumbled. They complained. They took exception to the actions of Jesus. The Pharisees had an understanding of holiness, whereby they believed that associating with someone who had a reputation of being a sinner could contaminate you. Moreover, eating with someone was a sign of social acceptance. From their perspective, they could not understand why Jesus would risk compromising his integrity and giving the impression that he endorses these people and their sinful ways. What they failed to understand was something that was illustrated by Jesus' encounter with the man who had leprosy earlier in chapter 5. Do you remember what happened? Leprosy refers to an infectious skin disease, and according to the law that God gave his people, someone with leprosy was considered unclean. And so the people of Israel would avoid any contact with someone who had leprosy, lest they run the risk of becoming unclean or contaminated themselves. They avoided all contact. They avoided all touching. Yet something extraordinary happened when the man with leprosy approached Jesus. He came to Jesus, that if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus, who has the power to heal with a word, made a choice not to merely heal him with a word, but to reach out and lay his hand on him. He made a point to touch the man who was unclean because of his skin disease. And yet, when Jesus touched the man who was unclean because of his skin disease, Jesus did not become unclean. Rather, the man who was unclean became clean by the touch of Jesus. A great reversal was happening in the ministry of Jesus. Similarly, when Jesus enjoyed close fellowship and friendship with tax collectors and sinners, he was not contaminated by their sin. But something happened to them. Many of them were changed by his love and his kindness. Jesus heard the objection of the Pharisees, which they directed to his disciples, and he responded with an explanation for his actions. His response was simple, short, and yet profound. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In the first part of his response, he compares himself and his ministry with a doctor and his patients. And we understand this, we get this. If we're doing well, if we're healthy, if everything's working the way it should, we don't think, I'm gonna go to the doctor today. Maybe we can even identify this more so nowadays with going to the dentist. No one thinks, I want to go to the dentist today if your teeth are feeling great. But if you have a bad toothache, you can hardly think of anything else other than, I got to get to the dentist. No one wants to go to the dentist. Their teeth are doing well. But if you are in pain, you go. Your need, you understand your need, and it drives you to get to the dentist as quickly as possible. Conversely, what kind of doctor would only receive patients who are healthy? If you're going to be one of my patients, you have to be in perfect health. I'm only accepting healthy people as my patients. No doctor would say such a thing. What kind of savior would avoid those in need of salvation. In the second part of his response, he drove his point home when he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our greatest need is a cure for our sin. We have already seen in last week's passage that Jesus claimed the authority to forgive all are sin. And he demonstrated that he has this authority through his miraculous healing. The healing pointed to his authority to forgive sin. And those who know they are sick go to the doctor, those who know they are sinners go to the Savior. Jesus did not require the tax collectors and sinners to clean up their acts and improve their reputations before he befriended them. He went to them as they were, but he had no intention of leaving them as they were. He is the physician who brings the cure. He is the son of man who forgives our sins. He is the Lord who calls us to repent and follow him. Jesus befriended sinners and called them to repentance. He demonstrated his love and his kindness to those who were outcasts, to those who were notorious sinners. But he called them to repentance. Perhaps this reminds us of what Paul wrote in Romans 2.4, which says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance. Jesus' kindness was meant to lead them to repentance. He demonstrated his loving kindness, befriending tax collectors and sinners, that they might repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins, the gift of eternal life. So who was Jesus referring to when he said he had not come to call the Righteous. Well, most likely he was referring to those who mistakenly perceived themselves to be righteous. The reason this seems to be the case is that what we see in the Old Testament scriptures is that no one is righteous apart from the saving grace of God. In Psalm 14, 1 through 3, we read, The fool says in his heart, There is no God, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And in Isaiah 64, 6, we read, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The point is that the scriptures, which Jesus and the Pharisees were very familiar with, provide a robust doctrine of sin that indicts everyone. We're all swept up in the net of the doctrine of sin. We are all guilty, we've all fallen short. We are all in need of a Savior. There was not a single person who was not in need of the salvation Jesus came to bring. But those who believed themselves to be righteous because of the way they lived their lives did not see their need for Jesus. Only those who understand their acute spiritual need will rejoice in Jesus and the salvation he brings. Is that you? Are you aware of your spiritual need? When the Bible talks about sin, do you know that includes you? You are in the need of the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot save yourself. You are in need of a savior. These events with Jesus, Levi, the tax collectors, and the Pharisees help us to see two very important things. One, you need to understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And secondly, you need to understand that your sin does not put you outside the bounds of God's grace. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. And He is a Savior who is able to forgive and cover all your sins. He went to the people who were on the margins of society, who had the reputation for being notorious sinners. He befriended them, loved them, demonstrating his grace, his compassion, and his kindness, and that he forgives even those who are regarded as the worst of sinners. Jesus befriended sinners, calling them to repent and follow him. In the second pattern of action, objection, and response, the action is stated in the objection. What was the objection? The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. In the objection, we learned that the disciples of Jesus were not fasting, but were eating and drinking. In the Old Testament, there was one time each year when God's people were commanded to fast. This was the day of atonement which we read about in Leviticus 16.29. But we do see other examples of fasting in the Old Testament. David fasted and wept for his dying child. The Jews fasted when they faced a dire threat in the time of Esther. The people of Nineveh fasted in response to Jonah's pronouncement of judgment. Fasting was often practiced to express repentance, to mourn or to seek the Lord for a particular request. And during the time of Jesus, it was not uncommon for the Pharisees to fast twice a week. For some, this was a point of pride. Jesus exposed this in the parable he told in Luke chapter 18. In verses 9 to 12, we read, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. trusted in himself that he was righteous in the way that he lived. I fast twice a week. I'm so glad that I am righteous. It's as though he came before the Lord to present his resume of righteousness. Look what I've done. Clearly, they viewed regular fasting as a matter of righteousness. But they did not see the disciples of Jesus fasting. They saw them eating and drinking and going to a feast with sinners. So they said, what gives? You say that you've called people to repentance. And that here you are, you and your disciples, eating and drinking and going and spending time with tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus responded to their objection. Once again, he provided a simple, short, yet profound answer he compared himself and his presence with his disciples with a bridegroom at a wedding. There are several places in the Old Testament where the Lord is referred to as a bridegroom. Tom Schreiner writes, Israel looked forward to the day in which her relationship with God would be restored. The Lord is described as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride and days of restoration were coming. Isaiah 54, 4 to 8, we read, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What beautiful imagery here, spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Describing the Lord as our husband. And you see, no one expects the guests at a wedding to fast and be downcast. On the contrary, if you're at a wedding with the bridegroom and the bride, you celebrate. You don't look sad, you don't fast, you don't mourn, you rejoice, you celebrate, you honor them by rejoicing with them. Jesus said there will be an appropriate time for fasting when the bridegroom is taken away, which was a reference to his death. But at that time, he was telling them that now is not the time for fasting. Now is not the time for mourning. Now is not the time to be downcast. Now is the time to rejoice because the bridegroom has arrived. The Messiah has come. God's salvation has been revealed. The time of fulfillment is now those who objected to the disciples' behavior failed to understand the time. Sadly, they failed to understand what was happening right in front of their eyes. Jesus' disciples, including Levi and his fellow tax collectors and sinners, were the ones responding in the right way, celebrating the arrival of of Jesus, the coming of Jesus and the salvation he brings is cause for celebration. Finally, Jesus told a parable illuminating the meaning of his coming and the nature of his ministry. He gave a parable with two parallel examples. In short, he said you don't take a piece of cloth from a new garment, to patch an old garment, and you don't put new wine In old wineskins, in both cases, the result would be ruinous. He gave two examples of things that were incompatible. A new piece of cloth is incompatible with an old garment. New wine is incompatible with old wineskins. They don't go together. You can't have both. Mike McKinley writes, In both cases, Jesus is making a point about his coming. Jesus hasn't come to patch up the things that were missing in the Jewish religion, even the religion of the most pious people like the Pharisees. The point that Jesus is making is that his arrival has brought about something new, a new covenant and a new reason to celebrate like guests at a wedding. What he came to do was incompatible with the institutions of the old covenant and the man-made religion of the Pharisees. Jesus would not be a patch on the old way and he would and he could not be contained by the old way. Of course his coming was incompatible with the man-made religion or the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. In order to receive him for who he is, one had to humble him or herself, recognizing their need for a savior. But even those who lived under the old covenant and were not self righteous, like the Pharisees, would need to embrace something new. The temple would no longer be the required place of worship. Jesus described himself as the new temple. We worship God through Jesus now. All the animal sacrifices required under the old covenant, would no longer be necessary because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice once for all. They would no longer need to sacrifice. As a matter of fact, they would need to do away with offering those sacrifices. The priesthood established under the old covenant would no longer be necessary because Jesus is our great high priest. He is the only priest we need the Levitical priesthood would need to be done away with. This was a radical change. Jesus came in fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament pointed to. And the Jewish people needed to embrace him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't recognize that times were changing and that there was a new covenant being established and this was a good thing. Sadly, Jesus predicted that letting go of the old and embracing the new would be too hard for many. He said, and no one after drinking old wine desires the new for he says, the old is good. The old is good. We're good with the old way of doing things. But Jesus called upon them to embrace him. and the new covenant, he came to establish and all the change that brought. As the long-awaited bridegroom and Messiah, Jesus came, ushering in a new era to establish a new covenant, calling sinners to repent and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins and their salvation. He was received and embraced by sinners, but the self-righteous failed to see him for who he was and failed to rejoice at his coming. Brothers and sisters, what does it look like for us to embrace the new? Admittedly, some of these things I've just talked about are easier for us to embrace than it would have been for a Jew living in the first century. We've come to understand, to accept these changes and the particulars of the new covenant. But we still need to wrestle with this and we still need to ask ourselves how do we embrace the new? How do we respond to Jesus? Well, I want to suggest three ways we need to respond to Jesus we need to enjoy his friendship, embrace his heart, and emulate his pattern. First, enjoy his friendship. Jesus was and is a friend of sinners. He gives us the gift of himself, and we will find no greater love and no greater friend than Jesus. We enjoy his friendship when we go to him as sinners, laying down and giving up any and all self-righteousness. We go to him as those who are needy, and we go to him confident that he is eager to forgive us and love us. As hard as it is for us to comprehend, he loves us and he treasures us. We see this in the great lengths he has gone to save us, to restore us to himself. He loves us, he values us, he treasures us and desires communion with us. Friendship with him. Brothers and sisters, embrace this and enjoy this. Enjoy your friendship with Jesus. Do you do so? Are you aware that he is with you? That he loves you? That he cares about you? That he knows you? That he wants you to go to him with your sins, with your burdens, with your sorrows? He wants you to go to him knowing that he loves you, that he cares for you. You will find no greater friend than Jesus, who is a friend of sinners. Second, embrace his heart. In our passage and throughout Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus received sinners who came to him and even initiated relationships with sinners. He was accused of being a friend of sinners. He came for the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to bring the wayward back to God. We see the heart of Jesus in Luke's gospel, and we want to have his heart for the lost in our community, in our country, and around the world. It is easy for us to look at the world around us and see everything that is wrong, and there is a lot that is wrong. And that can be burdensome. That can be discouraging. And it can cause us to be angry toward others. But we do not want to allow these things to cause our hearts to become cold, indifferent, hard-hearted toward those who are not Christians. Christians. We want to be tender hearted, understanding their need to be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. We want to have the heart of Christ towards sinners, which we also see in Paul. In Romans 10 1, he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He was referring to his fellow Jews, many of whom opposed him, mistreated him, and opposed the preaching and the ministry of the gospel. Yet he did not become angry with them. He did not become bitter. His heart toward them is that they would be saved. May that be true of us. May we be tenderhearted toward those who do not know the Lord. May our prayer for them and desire be that they will be saved, even when they make our lives More difficult. Finally, emulate his pattern. Jesus was comfortable in settings where he enjoyed fellowship with people who had a reputation for being sinners. He didn't feel threatened or uneasy. He loved and befriended them without compromising his integrity or watering down the truth. He befriended them while pointing them to their need to repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins. As those who bear the name of Christ, we want to do the same. Are you able to befriend people who believe and live differently than you? Are you able to do so without worrying about what they think about you? Are you able to focus on loving them rather than gaining their approval? Just as Jesus befriended us as sinners, calling us to repentance and forgiving our sins, so too we are to befriend other sinners and point them to Jesus. And this may make us uncomfortable, and following Jesus should make us uncomfortable. It should challenge us. It should stretch us. Knowing that Jesus made a lot of people uncomfortable. But that is good news. It is good news for us. It is good news for us that he came to to seek and to save the lost, that he came to call sinners to repentance, that he came to heal the sick. Brothers and sisters, when we understand our need for Jesus and go to him, we are changed and transformed, and it changes our hearts toward others. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Your word is good and it is good for us. We thank you and praise you for Jesus who befriended sinners. We are sinners. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And we thank you that Jesus is mighty to save, that he has the authority to forgive all our sins. So we pray that we will be those who go to Jesus with all our sins, with all our sorrows, to receive the mercy, the compassion, the loving kindness that we need. We pray that our hearts will be changed and transformed, that we too will have a heart for sinners just as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.